Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 8. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou done evil to this people? Why didst thou ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done evil to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, yea, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they dwelt as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray together. I pray, Father, that the truth of your omnipotence revealed to us through your holy word would not merely be understood, but would be tasted in the heart with that special supernatural sense mediated by the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And that what we taste will be the humility of reverence and the awe of recompense and the peace of refuge in the shadow of the Almighty. In the name of our King, we pray, Jesus Christ, amen. Let's begin by looking at the context of what Tom just read in Exodus chapters 5 and 6. Moses and Aaron have just accepted God's call to go down and release the people. And the response that they get from Pharaoh is found in chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, Who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Instead of letting them go, he makes their bondage more severe. They have to make bricks without straw or find their own. And so the foremen of the Israelite work crews assemble together and they come 
to Moses and say, you put a sword in the hands of Pharaoh to slay us. And so Moses cries out to God in verse 22 of chapter 5 like this. O Lord, why hast thou done this evil to this people? Why dost thou ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done evil to this people. And thou hast not delivered thy people at all. And then God very patiently responds in chapter 6, verse 1. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. Yea, with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. Isn't it the case that very often when you're discouraged, it gets darker and darker just before it gets brighter? Isn't it the case that the night seems to have the worst setback just before deliverance comes? That's exactly what God allowed to happen for these people. Here comes the deliverer. He's right around the corner. And just before the deliverance happens, the bondage just crushes. And therefore, I just want to hold out to you that God acts that way often. And he has his reasons, which we could explain in part if we took the time. But if you're in that situation this morning, that the last screw was just screwed down this week, please don't give up. Because deliverance is on the way. And then in verses 2 through 8, God gives Moses the assurance he needs that he will, in fact, deliver the people. The first thing he does is remind Moses of his name that he revealed back in chapter 3, verse 14, Yahweh or the Lord. Verse 2, I am Yahweh. Verse 6, I am Yahweh. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. In other words, remember, I am who I am. I haven't changed in these past few days. You will be delivered. Remember my name. And then in verse 3, God reveals another name that was a long-known old name in Israel. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh I did not make myself known to them. Now, why did God say this to Moses? What, how does this help Moses be encouraged that God is about the business of deliverance right now? I think... His argument goes something like this. God is saying now Yahweh is a greater name than God Almighty. It's a bigger name. It embraces the old one and includes it. I've kept this privilege of knowing me as Yahweh. I am who I am for you, Moses, and for the people at this particular time. In days of old, I revealed myself as God Almighty. But just think what that means, Moses. If they should have had certainty, as they surely should have, that I would bring them into the land of Canaan because I built a covenant on the name of God Almighty, how much more should you be encouraged that you not only have that name, but now the name Yahweh? And then in verse 4, as if to make it crystal clear how the argument is going, he says, I made a covenant as God Almighty. I made a solemn agreement with your fathers as God Almighty that I would bring them into the promised land. Now I have revealed myself to you as more than God Almighty, as Yahweh I am who I am. And surely then you can have confidence that I will fulfill my covenant promise and bring you into the land and therefore bring you out of Egypt. 
Now I want to focus on that old name today, the lesser name, if you could imagine, God Almighty. Steve mentioned that the Hebrew behind it is El Shaddai. The problem with Shaddai is that there are many disagreements about what that means among scholars. But I think the translation Almighty comes close to the essence of that name. And one of my reasons is Job 37:23, where the Lord says, The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Shaddai, he is great in power. So I think it's not wrong, but right to translate this name Almighty. And when you say Almighty, you imply that God has enough might to do all that he wants to do. So here's what I want to do with this name, or the omnipotence of God, as it's called. I want to spell out three implications that it has for God and three things that it means for us, practically. First of all, what does it mean for God? It means, in the first place, that God cannot be stopped from doing what he purposes to do. Daniel 4, verse 35. The Most High does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. There is no power in the universe that can stay the hand of God when he stretches it out to do a thing. It cannot be thwarted. Second, the omnipotence of God implies that he does whatever he pleases, to put it positively. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Or Isaiah 46.9, I am God and there is none besides me. My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. There are no purposes of God that he does not accomplish. God Almighty is not like us. He does whatever he pleases. One thing can hinder the purposes of the Almighty. His will. Third, the omnipotence of God implies that his power is superior to all other powers in the universe. There was a camera maneuver in the Olympics on television last summer that caused me to delight in God's power. You may have noticed it. The opening and closing ceremonies, most people would say, were phenomenal, out of this world, thrilling, blew your mind away with all the fireworks, 80 pianos, all the sound, all the color, all the crowds. It was great, splendid, powerful, might, big. And you, on television, one of the great scenes was when they were down there and the camera withdrew and then you took the whole Colosseum into view. And you said, wow, look at that crowd. And then the camera receded further and further up into the helicopter where it was sitting and the Colosseum got smaller and smaller until it was just a little blurry dot on the ground. And when I saw that, I said, praise God Almighty. Look what that looks like to God. 
Look how thrilled we are with a coliseum full of color and sound. Look how we stand in wonder. Look how we shout and clap and feel excitement and splendor at it all. And then look again at how God sees what moves us so deeply. Compared to his power and splendor, it's a blurry dot on the ground. God, on the other hand, puts forth a display of his strength every morning when he brings the sun up for us to see. 865,000 miles thick. 1.3 million times heavier than the earth. On its cool circumference, one million degrees centigrade. And he throws it up with his little finger every morning for us to enjoy. To thrill us with the glory of our maker. And to fill us with the hope that one day we're going to enter a land. Where all the things that have caused us to wander in this world are going to be as little specks on the ground before the infinite and eternal closing ceremonies of God Almighty. And as if the night would not be outdone or the day would want to be surpassed by the night in God's mind, He sets up what I said to my sons at the breakfast table this morning was God's little puppet show of His glory in the sky with Hercules and Perseus and Andromeda and Orion and Leo the lion and Draco the dragon sporting about in the local galaxy 100,000 light years across. One among millions of galaxies. Day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night Knowledge and what they say with amazing force for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear is God is infinite in power. Reverence Him. That's what the omnipotence of God implies about Himself. None can stay His hand. He does whatever He pleases. There is no power in the universe superior to God. Now what does it mean to us I said in my prayer at the beginning that I wanted three things to be applied to you. Reverence, recompense, and refuge. And those are the three promises I want to, to look at briefly with you. First, the omnipotence of God implies reverence from us. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? No, a fault finder will not contend with the Almighty. Nobody will contend with the Almighty. His ways may perplex us and we may go to him inquiring deeply to understand him, but not to indict him. If we try to set ourselves up to indict the Almighty for his ways in the world, then we or some court of appeals to which we look are higher than God, and that is a horrendous sin against His deity. Has the potter no right over the clay to do with it as he pleases, says the Lord. But reverence, that is a foreign emotion to fallen human beings. 
Very few people have tasted reverence. Isn't that true? If you consider God a pal or a sidekick or a grandfather or a religious drug for the uneducated, you can't reverence God. There are a lot of affections that you can feel for a little God. Reverence is not one of them. And therefore, it's rare because there are, is only little God in America by and large today. Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. What is reverence? I tried to bounce this off the staff. What is reverence? Reverence, I think, is a combination of admiration and fear. A combination of awe and dread. A combination of wonder and terror. It's an emotion that we were made to experience. We long for it. Everybody longs for it. Why else do people create and make millions on Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi? It's because we hunger for reverence and awe. Why do we take vacations to big places like the Grand Canyon? Oceans where we can look out over vastnesses of water. Why? Because we hunger. And most people don't know what they're hungering for. We hunger for reverence before the Almighty. Some friendly terror from joyful dread. And the only way we will ever experience it is if we know God as God Almighty. The second thing that the omnipotence of God means for us is recompense. A recompense of wrath upon those who do not believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There's a scene in the book of Revelation that John paints for us, one of those terrible scenes. A white horse comes forth from heaven and the rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are a flame of fire and he is clad in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the Word of God and the armies of heaven are in his train. From his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's so clear. Little children can get this. Hear the logic. If God is Almighty, people who resist Him cannot succeed. He will crush them and soak his robes in their blood. But they seem to prosper, do they not? The unbelieving and the arrogant, the hard of heart and the callous, they seem to prosper. But oh, the Bible is so clear in Psalm 73 what their latter end will be. Truly thou dost set them in slippery places, thou dost make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It is utter folly, is it not? 
utter madness to disobey the Almighty. You can't trick him, you can't thwart him, you can't defeat him. He has appointed a day in which his son will tread the winepress of the fury of his wrath because he is God Almighty. And finally, the omnipotence of God means refuge for those who have accepted the terms of his treaty. He does hold out a treaty, this warrior God. Right up until the day you die, the treaty is there awaiting your signature. Psalm 91, 1-2, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, My refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Refuge. Has it ever hit home to you what it means? This is what I beg the Lord to open my eyes to every day. Has it ever hit home to you what it means to say, God who loved me and gave himself for me is almighty. If we could live that faith, what a revolution at our church, in our families, at our work it would be. Freedom, joy, hope, power. Because the one who loved us and gave himself for us is infinite in power. It was not a slip-up in 1958 when Elizabeth Elliot gave to the life and testament of her slain husband, Jim Elliot, the title, Shadow of the Almighty. You remember what happened, don't you? January 8th, 1956, five missionaries, two days after having met the Alcas for the first time, meet them again, shake hands, and are cut to pieces. And killed. As a college student, Jim Elliott in 1949, I lived in the dorm that was named after Jim Elliott, and I often wonder, might I have stayed in the same room where he wrote these words? They have become the motto of many of our young people at Bethlehem. He said in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And around the world, the death of Jim Elliot and those four other missionaries was called a nightmare of a tragedy. But Elizabeth Elliot wrote two years later, The world did not recognize the truth of the second clause of Jim Elliot's credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. She called her book The Shadow of the Almighty from Psalm 91, verse 1, because she was absolutely convinced that the refuge of the Almighty is not a refuge from suffering or even murder. It is a refuge from final and ultimate defeat in the universe. It is a promise of final victory. God did not exercise His omnipotence to deliver Jesus from the cross. He did not exercise his omnipotence to deliver Jim Elliot, and he does not promise to exercise his omnipotence to save you from suffering. What he promises is that when you are like sheep, slaughtered all day long, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life 
nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The omnipotence of God is a refuge for his obedient people. Nothing that befalls you comes but by his ordination, and afterward he will receive you to glory. One last reference to a man named Arthur Matthews, minister or missionary to India, who said these words about how the revival in northern India some years ago got started. He said, Three renewed human wills that by faith linked themselves as with hooks of steel to the omnipotent will of God, yearning, pleading, crying, agonizing over the church in India and the myriads of lost souls. Hooks of steel in the omnipotent will of God. Make your prayer that for us at Bethlehem. And God may fall upon us and do a mighty work beyond what we'd ever dreamed in 20 by 20 to make an impact on this city with all its neighborhoods and 90 by 90 to make an impact on the frontiers where the gospel has never been heard. I invite you, I invite all of you to accept the terms of his covenant this morning. They are free terms, namely, lay down the arms of rebellion Put your faith in Jesus Christ, turn from your sin, and walk in the paths of the Savior. Let's stand for closing prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I yearn for this people and for myself. Oh, how I want more of you, God. How I want more power, more faith, more purity, more consistency more humility, more grace, more lowliness, more delight in all your great omnipotence. Pour it into my life, Lord, and pour it into the lives of your people. Gather us back tonight to dream together about where you're going at Bethlehem. Lord, thrill us with what it means to belong to an omnipotent God who loved us and gave yourself for us. And now to you, omnipotent God, be glory in the church and among the nations and in Christ Jesus to all generations and all God's people said, Amen.